I'm going to preach two sermons this morning, so I'll keep them brief, and we're going to have a break in the middle. Okay? Um, one's from the Old Testament, and one's from the New Testament, and the theme is the presence of God, or the presence of the King. And my, my question is this, are we hungry for God's presence? And the first one I will look at is in the Old Testament. So if you'd like to turn to 1 Chronicles 13, and while you're going there, I'll give you the background. So David was the king of Israel. It had been a tough time for him, but he was beginning to be in the ascendancy again. Uh, things were looking encouraging for him. Jerusalem, which was the prized city, the kind of capital of Israel, had fallen into Philistine hands, but now it was back in David's hands again. Um, And things were going well. And it says in 1 Chronicles 11, before this passage here, and David became more and more powerful because the Lord Almighty was with him. So God was with David, restoring things. Things were going well. So David thought, I'd like to bring the ark, the, how do you say, God's presence kind of materialized in the ark of the governor. I'd want to see God's presence back in Jerusalem. So he and a team went to get this ark. At the time, it was in a town called Kiriath-Jerim, which is about seven to nine miles to the west of Jerusalem, and there's a hill between the two. So it's a mucky old road between the two. So let's read 1 Chronicles 13. Thank you, Brian. Brilliant. David and all the Israelites with him went to Baal Judah, which is Kiriath Jerim, to bring up there the ark of God the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God with songs and harps and lyres and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. This was good. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah and he struck him down because he put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah David was afraid of God that day and asked how can I ever bring the ark of God to me he didn't take the ark to be with him in the city of David instead he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed his household and everything that he had. Imagine you were David. He was angry. (laughs) I gather that the word means he blazed up. (laughs) He was furious with God. He was also afraid of God. And he asked, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? And he gave up. But what about Obed-Edom? It was his day, wasn't it? 
He was a Gittite, which means he was from Gath, before you jump into any conclusions. A Philistine city. He was a foreigner, an outsider, not one of the chosen people of Israel. So Obed-Edom had this house. We don't know what his trade was, whether he was a farmer or, or what. But suddenly he's presented by these soldiers and this ark saying, can you keep this in your house, please? Okay. So there it's there. And it says, we read it. It was in his house for three months and the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. He had children. We know that from later on in scripture. So what does that mean? It means that he got on well with his wife. Might have been a good thing. Might have been a miracle. His children did well. His business prospered. Something was happening. And it was because of this presence in the house. He couldn't explain it any other way. And if you read on in, in Chronicles, and I'll put some notes out if you like, so you can look up the references, we learn this. In chapter 15, that he was appointed as a gatekeeper for the ark, and he helped it get transported to Jerusalem later on. He was also a musician who played the harp in the presence of the ark. Then we find in uh, chapters 16 and 26 of Chronicles that he stayed with the ark in Jerusalem and he was brought into the priesthood. Even though he was a Philistine, even though he was an outsider, he was brought into the priesthood and lived by the ark as a musician, as a gatekeeper. And in 2 Chronicles it even says that he was the one who cared for the gold, silver and all the articles of the house of God. I think that's incredible. <laughs> so David was upset and angry because things hadn't gone his way. But this outsider was in awe of the goodness of God and utterly gave his life to it. Isn't God good? It makes me wonder, the sons of Korah wrote Psalm 84, which we read four verses of at the beginning. I wonder if he was amongst those, because he, he played the harp. Maybe that was his job, maybe he made musical instruments, I don't know. But in that psalm, a bit later on, it says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. A transformed life. Are we hungry for his presence? So, in the context of disappointment, death, the presence of God blessed a Philistine and turned his life upside down. Do you see yourself as the outsider or as David? Are you like David angry because things haven't gone your way? 
I think it's interesting, he says, how can I ever bring the ark of God to me? And I wonder if it was like God saying, it's not you I'm interested in. It's everybody. Isn't it funny how our motives can get polluted? Or mine can. I can't speak for you. It's like his God got too small. He became the elder brother instead of the prodigal. End of part one. My question is, are you hungry for God's presence? And I want us to take two minutes. I want us to stand up. I want you to walk somewhere, just brief. But I want this thought to be in your head. Are you hungry for God's presence? Are you an outsider who really wants God? And you know he's on your side. Or are you angry at God of stuff? Because it's not gone your way. Because in part two, we're going to look at both those things are fine. Okay? You've got two minutes. Don't talk to anyone. Just think. Okay, make your way back to your seats. Back in July, a friend came to stay, a very good friend. And uh, he used a phrase which has been with me ever since. And it's quoted in Luke 24, which we're going to read in a minute. And it's this. But we had hoped. But we had hoped. So let's read Luke 24, verses 13 to 32. I'm assuming that you're all familiar with the story of the road to Emmaus. So I don't want to spend too long unpacking detail. Forgive me if I've got that wrong. But let's read this together. So this is after the resurrection. Okay, Jesus has been crucified. It seemed like the end of the world to the people who followed him. Disaster. But Jesus had risen. We know that because it comes in a few verses before. But these guys didn't know that. Now the same day, two of them... By the way, we don't know who these two are. One's called Clopas, Cleopas, but he may not be the same one who's mentioned elsewhere in John. We don't know who they are. But they weren't one of the twelve. They weren't from the eleven. So they were like slightly outsiders. It could have been a man and a woman... Maybe the husband and wife. We actually don't know. So let's just free our minds up a bit to put ourselves in the story. Now the same day two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked, they discussed these things with each other. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and you don't know the things that have been happening here in the last few days? What things? he asked. 
How about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said. But they didn't see him. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Amazing story. Emmaus is about seven miles west of Jerusalem. And many scholars say that was the same place as Kiryat Jerim. So here we've got a same kind of story. We've got disappointment. David was angry. What were the disciples thinking? What's happened to our saviour? It all seems to have gone wrong. In fact, our main person has died. What's going on? We had hoped. Again, there have been unprecedented events going on. So for David, there was this, it was all going his way. God was at work. Things were happening. So there was great rejoicing as he brought the ark on its cart and all this kind of thing. It all seemed like, yes, like Palm Sunday. Look at this. Our king is here. It's all going great. And then suddenly, we had hoped. What amazes me is the way Jesus was and how he is to us. Whatever category you feel yourself in. So it says, Jesus was walking with them and asked what they were discussing. They stood still in disbelief. The New Living Translation puts it like this. They said, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here in the last few days. <laughs> they just couldn't believe that this stranger who'd started walking with them didn't realise what had been going on. And Jesus said, what? For goodness sake, guys, look at me. I've risen. 
Pull yourself together. He said, what did he say? What things? This is Jesus, risen. What things? He didn't paper over their pain. He wanted them to talk. (laughs) He wanted to walk the road with them and hear what they were feeling. You can tell I'm doing a counselling course, can't you? But he did. He really did. What things? And then they say, we had hoped. And gently what Jesus did, it seems to me, is that whilst they didn't really perceive it, he opened their eyes to the bigger story. That it's not about Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, mighty in deed and word, who would make life easier for them and release them and their nation from Roman occupation. No, because he said it was about didn't the Christ have to suffer (laughs) so it's not just about a prophet and power but Christ who came to free not just Israel but the whole world from the domination of Satan and sin much bigger story And no wonder their hearts were warmed as he used scripture. He couldn't use Luke, it wasn't written. So the Old Testament, to warm their hearts. And they thought, whoa. It's like Jesus' presence with them was doing something to them. So it wasn't just intellectual. Something was happening by his presence with them. A bit like for Obed-Edom, I believe. Are we hungry for his presence? And Psalm 84, which I've been referring to a few times, says this. And I want to, I want to read this because it addresses that problem of pain which Jesus did not gloss over. He knew how they were feeling. He knew it was tough. He knew they were disappointed. It says, blessed are those whose strength is in you, who've set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of weeping, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God. So there's something about the presence of God that is bigger and more great and more wonderful and more amazing than circumstance. That even a place of weeping can become a pool. (laughs) Um, I expect you all know the verse in Romans 8, where it says all things work together for good. I I struggle with that verse, because I hate the way it's put on cards. When people are suffering, I think it's an abuse of scripture. He doesn't see everything's good. He says, but good can come out of it. 
but some things are just plain evil. So even a place of weeping, there could be a pool. There could be something that God, by his presence, can purify and make wonderful. But we had hoped. So I remember when Chris got ill. I mean, it's amazing how well she is, isn't it? Staggering, 11 years now. But I remember hopes are dashed. (laughs) You know, years of treatment. You can't make plans anymore. All those ideas we had about doing this or the other all went by the board. Still does. But actually, the presence of God, it kind of pales it a bit. It doesn't take away pain, but it makes a difference. I've been reading on other occasions when the presence of God makes a difference. And uh, I'm reading an amazing book, I can recommend it to anybody, called Dirty Glory. I don't actually like the title, but it's a good book. By a chap called Pete Gregg, he helped set up a, a prayer movement called 24-7. I just want to read a little bit out of here because, I, thanks Richard, I, I love the worship and I love the way you, you're bringing focus that God is bigger than we are. And I love hearing true story, testimony, however old it is, but the more recent the better, of what God is doing and what he can do. That's why I want to get involved with people who are coming out of prison because I think God can save them. God can touch them God can turn them round no one else can well that's not against the things that people are doing and sometimes they need all the help they can get but I do believe God can turn them round so this is about the revival in the Hebrides okay this was in 1949 to 1953 And there were two ladies, Christine and Peggy Smith. One was 82, bent double with arthritis, and the other was 84 and blind. They couldn't do much, but they could pray. And on a particular night, they were so burdened by the absence of young people in the church... So they prayed. Suddenly, one of the women received a vision of young people filling the church. It was as simple as that. The sort of thing we might gloss over in some of our meetings today. But these two old ladies weren't so flippant. They summoned the minister to their house the following morning and informed him, quite unequivocally, whatever the word is, that he will be needing to get ready, they said. Revival's coming. What do you suggest I do? He said a little helplessly. What should you do? They gasped. You should pray, man. They said. And these two octogenarian saints proposed a deal. If you will gather your elders and pray in the barn at the end of the village at least two nights a week, they said, we will do the same here from ten at night till three in the morning. And so a remarkable series of late-night prayer meetings began in the village of Barvas on the Isle of Lewis in the year of 1949. They carried on like this twice a week because they were convinced that God had spoken to them. 
There were no instant answers, no further visions, and certainly no teenagers turning up at church. But the sisters kept praying in their cottage, and the church kept praying, the elders kept praying in the barn for many weeks. Until one. I should have warned you. (laughs) I can't read this book without crying. Because it's amazing. Because God is so good. One night, one of the elders read a bit from a psalm. And then he said, It's just so much humbug waiting here, night after night, if we ourselves aren't right with God. They continued, after nodding, I must ask myself, Is my heart pure? Are my hands clean? Then revival started. Thousands came to Christ. Thousands. They were coming to Christ on the way to church. They were woken up in the middle of the night saying, I've got to go to church. They called for a preacher to come and visit, called Duncan Campbell. He came for ten days and stayed two years. And I'm not saying it's going to be the same again. I'm not even preaching that. I'm not asking that. What I'm saying is, the presence of God was everything. Everything. Because it doesn't make sense otherwise. It just doesn't make sense. Little islands in the Outer Hebrides, two little ladies praying, and people doing what they think they could do, and that's about it. But we had hoped. Now I want to ask a question, which I ask myself, and I don't like asking it. Where do you stand? What are your hopes that just don't seem to have been fulfilled? We had hoped. And as I was preparing this and thinking about it, I was very moved by it, and I thought back to this church about six or seven weeks ago, because I noticed it in my journal. It was September the 24th, Sunday morning. And we knew the grace and mercy of God that day in an exceptional way. We heard testimony of God's greatness and power amongst outsiders. Remember Aaron sharing one of them. We listened to the the story of the prophet Huldah and inconspicuous women who brought the word of God to Josiah. Ruth shared a bit. And in the end, we got on our knees here and we asked God's forgiveness and presented ourselves again to God with all our hearts. God was here. Do I get disappointed? Yeah. Am I sad? Yes. But Jesus says, what things? And in verse 28, 
It says that as they approached the village, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. And here's my plea, here's my exhortation, here's my encouragement. Isn't it strange um, that it's like God has given us the option? (laughs) He was going further. But something had so moved those disciples that it says they urged him strongly. The word is quite a strong word. It's only used twice in scripture. And it means to compel by force. (laughs) Isn't that funny? They said, no, stay with us. (laughs) Stay with us. What would have happened if they hadn't said that? (laughs) Stay with us. We need your presence. And he did. And then they realized who he was. (laughs) We all know the, uh, the scripture in two chronicles, I expect. When I shut up the heavens and so on, if my people who call on my name, I'm not going to repeat the whole verse, But there's three interesting words in it. When, when things don't go right in the nation you're living in. If my people pray, then I will act. That's a promise. If we pray, I don't understand God's economy. Does anyone? How is it that God somehow invests so much responsibility in us that we can approach him and he will act? How do I summarize? (laughs) I really believe God is with us. I really believe God moved in this congregation six or seven weeks ago and since. I'm not saying that was the only thing. But what I'm saying is, can we turn to Jesus and tell him what it is we're frustrated about? Or our longing? I wish. It seems like we're just about in the cusp and then it goes again. But how about saying, stay with us, God. Because it's the outsider you're interested in. It's not about me saying, bring your ark to me. Bless this church. No. Come for the outsider, for the prisoner, for my son, for my work colleague, for the fellow students I'm with at Network. Come for them. Because that's what God's about. We've got all the blessings we could want. Because we're here. And we can sing about him. We understand a fraction of the cross. We're free, aren't we? What a privilege. But God's got a bigger picture. God's got a bigger picture. And my prayer, my plea, and in praying for the elders who are meeting this afternoon, it's, 
Oh, your presence, Lord. Don't let us get hung up on the stuff and the bits and putting your ark on a cart and all this stuff. Let's put it on our shoulders and say, be with us, God. Just be with us because you've got a job to do and I, for one, want to be part of it. What's the answer? I don't know the answer, except I do think we've got to pray. Hmm. Do you want to say something now? Chris and I talked a bit about this beforehand. <laughs> um, we had a lovely two-week holiday earlier this year in Northumberland, and when I went away, I was determined we would, I was switch off and not think about church and stuff and uh, manage that most of the time. But one day, when I was just spending some time praying, being at a bit, bit of a distance, I found it helpful. And my question to God was, um, what, would, what would the angel say to Ken's Road? What's God saying to Ken's Road? Where, where are we at? And I'm not saying this is the word of God, but it might, might be. <laughs> um, but I, I just had this strong sense that the, of the words, we've lost a place of sanctuary. And um, to me, that kind of meant that maybe we're doing too much activity and not enough prayer. It's amazing all that we do here all through the week and all the things that go on. But in, in comparison, how much prayer do we do? And um, I've been reading this book that Pete referred to. He keeps nicking it from me. And <laughs> this guy, Pete Grieg, um, set up the 24-7 prayer um, initiative that he's taken in many countries of the world. And... Um, these prayer meetings are referred to as boiler rooms because they're the powerhouses. They're where things really happen. And prayer is a hard thing to do. I remember when an elder in the church we used to be in in Reading saying that prayer is just hard work. It's not glamorous. It's not something people flock to do. Um, it can be a lonely place, but it's so vital. And um, so I believe that for this church that's, Maybe where we're at, that we do so much, but where's our prayer life? So, without wasting time, (laughs) Pete and I are proposing that on a Sunday afternoon, starting today, from five to six, we're going to come here, and um, really glad that that prayer corner has been set up, um, that we're going to come here and we're going to start praying and we'd love anybody to join us um, for the presence of God in this place and to be the power behind all that we do. Yeah, we were wondering what to do. We thought, well, what, what do you do? What do you do? You know, we just pray. Just do things at home. But um, Do you know what I don't want to call it? It's a prayer meeting. Because I don't know about you, but immediately you say prayer meeting, something comes to mind, like sitting around like this, lowering your voice. <laughs> How about walking like they did to Emmaus? <laughs> but I think what God's saying is, what things? What things? Let's pray like that. 
Because God can take it. He can take it. He's such a good God. And his presence makes all the difference. So I'm going to call it tonight, five o'clock. We're not expecting anyone to come. Don't worry about it. But if it's in your heart, we're calling it a walk in the park. All right? Because that corner over there is called Park, P-A-R-C, which stands for Prayer and Reflection Corner. It's been set up by the cafe, and it's just for that. So that's good, isn't it? So we're going to start there. A walk in the park. It's not a prayer meeting. Yes! But it's saying to Jesus, here we are. We long for you to be here with us.